Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. This episode features one of the three guests who were part of my weekly hour-long NPR show broadcast over the air every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it is broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival. The 8th annual New York City premiere will be October 2023, along with the 5th annual New York Cat Film Festival before traveling the country, supporting local animal welfare groups. This show is about dogs, cats, and other creatures who share the planet with us. Please check out my other Pet Talk podcasts at TracyHotchnerPets.com. I would not be able to bring you this show without the generous support of Dr. Elsie's the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Bruce Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian. He personally created many styles of litter to make sure that even the fussiest cats would not have out-of-litter box problems, the number one reason people abandon their kitties. Dr. Elsie also created his own brand of cat food called Clean Protein, the first dry cat food I can recommend because it's based on the protein found in a cat's natural prey. This show would not be possible without the longtime support from Waruva, the pet food company founded and privately run by David Foreman, who named it after his rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Waruva is a quirky name for a company with whimsical names for the dozens of different cans and pouches of cat food they make. But what sets them apart is how serious David is about high-quality nutrition. They were the first pet food company to use human edible ingredients and process them in the same facilities that make human food. Other pet food companies may have copied them over time, but Waruva remains privately owned and run, accountable only to their own high standards, not investors who focus on profits. I was so interested to read that there is an organization called the Take Charge Registry, Canine Health and Registry Exchange, and one of the leading veterinary oncologists in the country, Dr. Craig Clifford, is a big part of it. And so luckily he was able to make time. He doesn't have a whole lot of time. He's the director of Blue Pearl Science and a medical oncologist at Blue Pearl Pet Hospital in Malvern, Pennsylvania. He got his training at the prestigious University of Pennsylvania, all in the same state, in oncology and many other illustrious uh, accomplishments after his name. Dr. Clifford, thanks for taking the time to be here. I think that one of the things that's important about this Take Charge Registry is the actual name of it. I've been thinking about it before we spoke and the fact that people, I think, with their dogs in particular more than cats, feel a little out of control, that cancer is so predominant and prevalent, they probably would like to take charge on some level of their dog's health and prevent cancer or deal with it quickly and and early. So was that any part of the name, the feeling that that we were going to cancer, you, we, I say we, the royal we, you and all of your fellow oncologists are going to find a cure, find a way to conquer it? Yeah, I think it was certainly aptly named. So first and foremost, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, I'm very honored and greatly appreciate the opportunity to speak on this. But yes, I think it was very aptly named as a way to um, help evoke uh, people whose pets have cancer to help get their data involved in this registry. So not just 
reaching out to the primary care or the specialty veterinarians that are treating them, but also to have kind of a grassroots behind it in regards to having the owners themselves can actually upload their pet's data and that information then helps others down the line. So yes, they're taking charge by by getting involved and I think it's aptly named. I, I really, I think it's impressive. And also the work you're doing is really impressive. As a medical oncologist at Blue Pearl in Malvern, Pennsylvania, do you oversee other oncologists, cancer specialists, or do you and or do you see patients yourself? I see patients myself. Um, two days a week, I see patients, and then two days a week, I'm I act as the director for Blue Pearl Science, handling all the commercial trials. Um, at our hospital, we have four medical oncologists, and we have two radiation oncologists and one surgical oncologist. Wow. We have a very very busy service. Our uh, our head of service is actually my protege, Dr. Christine Mullen. And, um, you know, for anyone who has ever done training, it's wonderful when you have someone you've trained that ends up being better than you. Oh, so that's she's, nice. So she's technically my boss right now. I love to tell her that. It makes her smile. That's so sweet. That's really very lovely. I think to hear you have all these specialists and subspecialists of oncology is heartening for people that live anywhere near Melbourne, Pennsylvania. We've, we've, we've had, I've had guests on that were radiation specialists, and we talk about how that works for oncology, but to also have a, a surgical oncologist who does surgeries specifically for cancers. Can you just take a minute to talk about the importance of that? I, I know most of us are not lucky enough to have access to a surgeon who is specialized in cancer, but how important do you think it is if a surgery is being done that, that the surgeon who's already sub-sub-specialized as a veterinarian also be specialized in, in cancer? Do you think they do a better job? Do they get cleaner margins? I think we all now know what that means. Do they Are they more thorough? No, I, I think what it is is that at, so it, uh, a person that is, to take a step back, a person that is a surgical oncologist is also a boarded surgeon. So just like everyone else, That's they have right. gone through a red. Then they did an extra year or longer um, that is in a defined approved program where they're trained by surgical oncologists. And most of the surgeries that they end up doing or that, that they're most, I would say, famous for are going to be ones that are much, much more complicated. So not the garden variety, take a mass out. Um, I see. You know, most surgeons can go ahead and do. They're going to be doing the ones that would cause most surgeons to have a little bit of trepidation mm -hmm. going into but this is what they were trained to do is to train to do the very hard type surgeries that may be in difficult locations. So that's where we're very excited to have uh, her name is Dr. Jennifer Reagan to have her on board because her expertise in this just gives us another avenue. We have another, you know, boarded surgeon who also does cases with us, but to have someone who is truly specialized for cancer cases is wonderful. And oftentimes when we see the case, she will walk in and say hello to the owner, introduce herself, and go through it and just do an on-the-spot consult as well. Nice. So for the owner, because they don't have to come back. Because as you just stated, many times people drive many hours yeah. to see us. And the idea of having to come back twice for a three- or four-hour drive is not an easy one for most owners, or for the pet for that matter, Correct. as many of them are not thrilled with driving. Or even the ones who are thrilled with driving now that they have cancer everything in life is a little less thrilling until they get on the other side of it, if there is another side to get on. How do you get 
owners to be part of the Take Charge registry. You want people to be involved. You want them to give information. But how do they how do they access you? Does it have to be through the doctor taking care of their, their animal who has cancer? Well, to take a step back, really where, where this came from is that in other countries, there are registries that are set up, but there isn't anything within the states. And we know that, you know, the estimated 6 million dogs are diagnosed with cancer each year. And we feel that nearly half of the dogs greater than 10 will develop cancer. So clearly, is the most common cause of death for them. And the challenge we had is that we want our partners in industry to come in and give us all the new drugs, all the new diagnostics. But from their part, as you can understand, it's a business. And what they say is, well, what's the market? How many of these cases do you see? And all we can tell them are very, very rough estimates. Well, I see 100 of these a year, and there's 400 oncologists, so do the math. Well, that's not really a good way to go about it. (laughs) Right. The whole point of this was to be able to put this registry together where we can look at the breed, the type of cancer, the age, the gender, the location, and this will help inform us. It allows us with this registry really to look at state-by-state incidence and prevalence. So what is the exact number of cases that have cancer at that time, or what are the number of new cases that are occurring at that time? And it's open access. It has a dashboard that allows you to go to each state. So one of the things, especially since One Health, which you and I were talking about before we started this, is so important nowadays. You know, dogs may actually act as a canary in the coal mine. You know, there is yes. some recent anecdotal data that in outside of Oklahoma, they're seeing a lot of thyroid cancer in dogs. Not a very common cancer in dogs, less than 1% of all the cancers. So the thought process is, say, for instance, we start to see an uptick of certain cancers in a certain state, is that going to be a precursor to seeing that same cancer in people? So could the information we learn from dogs help us potentially prevent some of these things in people or at least be able to look out for it? That's really interesting, and and it it benefits the dogs in a full circle kind of way because, as you said, the companies making drugs, making equipment, having clinical trials, and you're involved in a lot of clinical trials with Blue Pearl Science, if they feel or or discover that there is a demand and a need, then – the dogs will benefit too because often dogs are used not just as canaries as in, oh my God, look at all this thyroid cancer, but here, this this drug, this intervention, we're going to try it on dogs who already have cancer because it's it's available for people. Let's try it on dogs and see how it works. I, I don't know if the Canines and Kids Foundation, which I didn't even know existed, uh, from what I read, addresses the types of cancer most common to children and canines, which is really depressing. Brain cancer, leukemia, lymphoma, and bone cancer. So those cancers affect children and dogs the most, right? Yeah, uh, both of them are affected by it. And the perfect example is the one you mentioned, bone cancer. And specifically, we're talking about a cancer called osteosarcoma. Um, for any of your listeners, if you are, you know, fans of 60 Minutes, earlier in the year, there was actually an entire 60 Minutes episode that was dedicated, or at least a portion of it, dedicated to comparative oncology. And they were looking at osteosarcoma. And when it's looked at under the microscope by a pathologist, you can't tell whether you're looking at a dog, osteosarcoma, or a person. 
And one of the things that came out of this was one of the clinical trials that was done in dogs first to learn more information. The data from that allowed a clinical trial to be done earlier with people. And I was very blessed to be with the head of the comparative oncology branch, Dr. Amy LeBlanc, at a briefing meeting at Capitol Hill. And in our audience, when it was done and we took questions, a young woman raised her hand and she said, I don't have a question, but I just wanted to say thank you. Oh. You know, looking back, and then she says, I was on that trial. I had failed multiple protocols. Oh, my God. Lungs, and I am cancer-free two and a half years now because of that oh study. Oh, my so, goodness. And that really hit home. I told her, you made my day. You wow. know. I got chills from that. I mean, the National Cancer Institute is interested in humans, but half of us, I want to make pretend that half the people in America have a dog. I made up that number. Of course, it's not true. But a lot of us have dogs who we adore, and we see them getting cancer at 6, 8, 10, 12, especially the larger dogs. I mean, Yogi Bear, my my large Rottweiler at 6, long bone cancer in the front leg. It's, It's just kind of stunning what the heck is going on? And then you look at the, the hospitals and this, the the amazing hospitals with free care for children and children getting brain and bone cancers and surviving it with brilliant care and coming out the other side well and living a full life. Both the animals and the kids, and, I, and in this case, the, the adult lady too, they're all benefiting each other, but it's because of scientists like you and what you're doing. I mean, if you hadn't made the connection for one health between dogs and people, then neither neither species would be getting this kind of double whammy benefit, would they? Without question. And I, I clearly can't take credit for this. This I'm a, a small piece of the village that helped put this together. Really, uh, Dr. Chan Kana, who is with um, uh, Ethos Health currently, uh, was the one who went to NIH and NCI, National Cancer Institute, and pitched the idea of the comparative oncology branch. So he's the one who actually got all of this set up in the early 2000s because, you know, the challenge you have is that when drugs come out, they initially do work in cell culture, and everything can be killed in cell culture. Right. Then what they basically do is they grow the tumor in cell culture, then they give it to a mouse that has no immune system, so something completely foreign and they give whatever drug they're giving. Then the next step is they go directly to people. And that's a big leap. Right. And that's why 99 out of 100 drugs fail. So the thought process was to have an intermediate approach in an animal that naturally develops the disease. So it's not an abstract putting a tumor into a patient with no immune system. You're putting it to a patient with a normal immune system, normal blood vessels, normal everything that naturally developed the cancer. Um, is truly the better path. And the FDA recognized this because one of the things the drug companies were worried about is, well, what if an unknown toxicity comes up in dogs? Is that going to kill my study in people? And the FDA came out and said, no, that's not going to cause you to lose it. You're still going to be able to go forward, but we're hoping that the information you gain may provide valuable information to the investigators on the people side and vice versa. And and as we know about people with the most serious kinds of cancer in particular, any cancer, but certainly the more serious ones that are definitely life-limiting. When, as the lady in your audience on Capitol Hill said, when she's tried other things or they've been tried on her and maybe she got lucky enough, if you will, to be in a trial of a drug that didn't work, you want to try anything. 
And it's not enough to say, please, doc, just, you know, give me anything you got. I'll try anything because that is the, the mindset. But you're not allowed to ethically. But I think if it's worked in a dog, is there more chance that it will get to the human sooner? Because that, that desperation that people with very serious or more advanced cancer feel is, I'll try anything because we do know the history of cancer from the extraordinary biography of cancer, the emperor of all maladies. It's been a science experiment from day one back in the ancient, ancient, ancient times, right? You just try whatever you can and you let fall by the wayside what doesn't work and you try something else, but you can't try it on little children or even on grown-ups without there being some proof of concept. And mice probably are just, as you said, a weak, a weak proof. Without question. So we think that this is a better intermediate role that can then help fast track some of these drugs to get into people sooner. And as we saw with, you know, the individual who was at our, at our talk, um, you know, it truly helped. Now it's not every patient, but still it was very gratifying because as you know, with what we do, we often don't get to see the, the fruits right. of everyone. And to be able to see that and to see that this person is still here, yeah, you know, with us, still enjoying life, and they owe it to that was absolutely wonderful and extremely gratifying, as you can imagine. So back to your original question, yes, owners can actually upload their documents themselves, or the primary care veterinarian or the specialist can be involved as well. Um, all of the information is um, done on an anonymous way, so we follow very specific general data protection guidelines, which we know we see all of the bank troubles and things where our data is getting out right. there. Very important thing. So it's done in a way where it is all anonymous. And only the information regarding the patient and the cancer is really uploaded. So there really isn't a fear that we're going to pull out other data or something is going to happen. It's all done at the highest possible level. So it can be done by primary care allowing us to have access, search through the records and pull out all the cancer records. Or if it is a very dedicated owner whose practice you know, may not want to do it or may not have the ability to do it, they can certainly upload their own pet's medical records. And all of that is becomes citizen science and becomes, as you said, the village that helps everybody. Very quickly, with only a moment left, what is the name of that website that they go to? Is it the Take Charge Registry? You got it. Okay, so, so I'm going to have a link to that with the podcast of this conversation. Just to, to wrap up, Dr. Craig Clifford is an extraordinary oncologist with many, many bowls in the air, doing great, great work with a lot of other great oncologists on behalf of dogs and children and adult humans. And I wish we had more time, Dr. Clifford, but I just want to thank you just as much as the lady whose life you were some small part of helping to save. I think you'll be saving a lot of dogs' lives too. And to those of us listening, sometimes that almost seems more important than ourselves. So thank you so much. No worries. Thanks for your time and have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening. There are a few more special companies that make this show possible. I hope you will try their products because they support my mission to entertain you with valuable information and advice. This show is supported by Wonderside, a company founded and run by a woman entrepreneur who wanted to find an effective natural way to keep fleas, ticks, and other pests away from her pets and home instead of putting toxic chemicals in or on them. Wonderside makes plant-powered products to keep parasites at bay without dousing your pets and property with ingredients that are harmful to them and the planet. 
The show is also underwritten by Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two dedicated women who take human edible, ethically sourced ingredients and gently cook dog food that is then frozen in pouches and shipped right to your door. They founded and run their own company and have been doing that for 14 years and answer only to their own high standards without interference from venture capital investors. I'm also grateful to Earth Animal, also privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, where they create holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. Earth Animal makes a dazzling array of healing products for dogs and cats, as well as the innovative Dog Chew No Hide and the hybrid dog food Wisdom, which is sometimes all that my picky blue Weimarano Maisie will eat.